Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Where is where's Jeff? <laughs> okay. <laughs> hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Notable. Yes, hello. Yeah, our uh, last one before we go back on the road, Stuart. We're going back on the we road. We are, yeah. I'm so excited. I'm You'll so be able excited. to hear the excitement running right through this one, I think, in anticipation. <laughs> Next week's instalment, mm. if you're doing this on a weekly basis, and I hope you are, maybe you're binging on them all in one go, mm. but the next instalment of uh, Notable, the podcast about quirky, fascinating music history, will be from the Timber Festival. It will, yeah. We love the Timber Festival. It's we in the new it. National Forest it near is. Ashby de la Zouche, yeah. if you want to come and join us. And yes, of course you could, because you, yeah. you could listen to this before we get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, weekend of the 3rd and 4th of July, isn't okay. it? Depending on when you're listening. We don't want people turning up in Ashby de la Zouche in don't, August. No, we don't want that. Don't do that. We don't want that, although the, Ash, <laughs> although the Ashby de la Zouche tourist board yeah, they might be, enjoy be happy it. if you do. No, but today we're going to talk about Wendy Carlos. We are. And mm-hmm. Norman Pilcher. Norman Nobby Pilcher. Norman Nobby Pilcher. <laughs> More on him in a moment. Wendy Carlos. Yeah, Wendy Carlos. So, um, Jeff and I actually. Jeff, hi. We're, Producer uh, Jeff. Yeah. We're not with him today. He's no. letting us do this ourselves. <laughs> He's very brave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows what might happen. Yeah. Uh, so we were finding out a bit more about Wendy for Radio 4 recently. People okay. want, might want to listen to our programme, Archive on 4, Woman Machine, still on BBC Sounds. Um, but yeah, so she's a musician who really encouraged uh, Robert Moog. Moog, Moog is the correct spelling, isn't it? We've it's already we, discussed Apparently that. it's Moog. Mo- oh, right, the Dutch. Dutch, but no one says that, do they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so she encouraged him to develop the Moog Moog synthesizer and helped him engineer it as well. She released a really landmark classical album, Switched on Bach, as they get me to say on Radio 3, uh, <coughs> Moog synth versions of Bach compositions. So that obviously shook up the classical world, but it really changed the perception of the synthesizer as well. And it moved it from being not just a kind of sound effects instrument, but a proper instrument on which you could play classical music, yeah. proper music. So a bit more on that later. But she had an extraordinary life, really. Uh, She was born into a working class family in Rhode Island. She learned to play the piano because her father drew a keyboard on a piece of paper and she would sort of just put her fingers up across the drawn keys. They they couldn't afford a piano. Yeah, so she had lessons, but then in between she practised. What, and heard it in her head? Yeah, exactly. You're too young to remember this. There was a thing... There was a music quiz show on TV, someone should bring it back, called Face the Music. And for one bit of it, there was this dude called Joseph Cooper who used to sit at the mm. dummy keyboard. I remember this from being a little kid. And I loved it, even though I knew nothing about classical music because I was about eight. But I used to love it. And he would sit down at the dummy keyboard. It was a keyboard that didn't play. Okay. And go... <laughs> and people would go... What is that? And people that would go, oh, played? that's uh, Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. <laughs> They would. Really? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine imagine the BBC now doing 
a highbrow classical music <laughs> quiz where, where people, where people go, oh, that's... Um, I know that. That's Janacek's uh, second piano sonata. What? So they just know from he would, the... Just, you'd have to get it from the, just the fingering. Oh, yeah. Stuart, what's this? That's Beethoven's fifth. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm really good at this. Can you imagine that? No. It, oh. Anyway. Just imagining the notes from that. Just watching the fingers. Oh, I see what you mean. They could actually No, but you see could see, fingers. but you can. I mean, if you wow. know a little bit about music and rhythm. Yeah. Uh, but this was like half past eight on BBC Two. Oh, can you imagine yeah, that? No. We could bring you, that back. I think they should. If you're listening to BBC Two boxes. That could be our next podcast. Bring, the, bring Face the Music back with me and Elizabeth. Come on. So, uh, Face the Music. So, yeah, Wendy Carlos. That's how she Wendy learned. Wendy Carlos. On this paper keyboard that her dad drew for her. She obviously showed real kind of aptitude for technical design and engineering from an early age. She built a hi-fi system for her parents and she won a science contest at the age of 14. She invented a kind of prototype computer. She's incredible. Then she made her first tape machine for music making. She was interested in that from a young age, something we I think we're obsessed with on this programme, Music Congrats. Yeah. It all comes back to that. And then I should say a lot about her life is kind of unknown because she lived as a recluse relatively, really, really, for at least a decade uh, after her gender transition. So she was born Walter Carlos. She was. A lot of her early successes and releases are under that name. Uh, And then, of course, you know, we're talking in the 60s and 70s, so things were a lot different then. And it took her some time to kind of emerge publicly with this new identity, Wendy Carlos. And she was... Um, but she's been reasonably secretive about it ever since, really. Right. She's quite famously litigious. Oh, um, really? Yeah. If people write things about her, she can be, and she rarely gives interviews. Although there is some absolutely fans Again, on the BBC in 1989, this was. Hard to imagine it being broadcast now on mainstream TV. There's an interview with her. She's got kind of Siamese, I think it is, cat, draped across her shoulders. And she's demonstrating on an old Moog synthesizer, which looks like it looks like a telephone kind of operator room from from the wall. It's so complex, all these wires. I'd love to train Terry to kind of drape across my shoulders. And I could just Absolutely. When we do the TV version of it. When we do do Face the Music on BBC (laughs) Two with the dummy keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in the 60s, she went to study music and physics at Brown and Columbia. And immediately after that, she found herself at a music technology and audio conference in New York. And that's where she first met Robert Moog. OK. Uh, apparently he was asleep on a chaise longue. Wow. Do you remember that chaise shorts we found in um, yeah. the Six Music Festival? <laughs> yeah, we did, yeah. Chaise, so he was asleep on a chaise long? He was, yeah. And she uh, she knew who he was. She knew about his, <laughs> his early kind of experiments with oscillators and that kind of thing. Uh, she had all kinds of ideas already as to how this you know, new instrument that would become the synthesizer could be developed. His kind of early, you know, synthesizer models, how they could be developed. Um, a lot of it was to do with the way the person operating it could kind of control the pitch and the timbre, mm. like a real musician. Yeah. So she was really kind of instrumental in developing it in that way. She really helped him turn it into more of a kind of fully fledged instrument. And then she used it like one. So as I said, switched on Bach. We get this in 1968. Bach compositions performed on the Moog synthesizer. Apparently it took five months and a thousand hours to record. But it's, it's not just kind of note for note reinterpretations no. of the bark a lot of it's a lot of the musicality is kind of reframed isn't it it's very much bark for synthesizer but i think we get this i suppose it's the synthesizer expressing 
you know, the condition of the human soul, which is pretty novel for technology to do that. And yeah. that's why it was so revolutionary. It I is amazing, isn't it? I mean, for copyright reasons, as we all say, we can't play that music now. But when yeah. we're finished, go and listen to it. Because if you think that electronic music is cold and bleak, which some people do, because yeah. he has that, cause I guess, post-craft work, it kind of yeah. took that thing on. A machine-generated Ma- exactly. as opposed to human interpretation exactly but it's not like that is it it's, it's not playful and yeah. yeah yeah there's a lot of um personality and character and 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 hum- humanity in it i suppose also a lot of as i say kind of reinterpretation of the original bach but he allowed space for that so for the second movement of brandenburg concerto number no. three in g major he only actually provided two chords and the rest could be improvised around so she did a lot of kind of work with yeah, that piece yeah. in particular reconstructed this piece to showcase the capabilities of the Moog so yeah just like I say a testament to the timelessness of Bach I think mm-hmm, yeah because it does sound yeah. very contemporary doesn't it but also just the ability of the machine yeah. and you know endless possibilities of the machine to make well, music there is, there is- a certain machine-like quality to Bach, isn't there? Yeah. Which is one of the reasons I quite like it. It's very crisp. Mathematical. It's very crisp and logical, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, a lot of numbers, number yeah, work, yeah, yeah. maths, to <laughs> call it. Yeah. Um, it was hugely successful, this It record. was, wasn't it? Yeah, in six years, it sold over a million copies. Sheesh. Who'd have thought it? You know, the label didn't expect it to do that no. well, as you wouldn't. Only the second ever classical album at that time to go platinum. It won Grammy Awards for Best Classical Album, Best Performance, Best Engineered Classical Album. Of course, the Grammys have got a category called that. Um, and it's also been hugely influential. Leonard Bernstein was a massive fan, actually. Mm. And he works with Wendy Carlos to present an evening of electronic music at the Lincoln Centre. Right. Um, and, you know, people like Giorgio Moroder have said it was the thing that switched him onto electronic music. A big influence on Martin Hannett, actually. Yes. And he said that you can hear it in the kind of Manchester sound that he was to play yeah, a yeah, part in yeah. producing. Uh, latterly, people like Will Gregory have said how important it was. And also, you know, he said, just in terms of people's perception of, of machines, of, of music technology. Um, and also what we've said before about technology giving people means to make music who might not otherwise have had it. Mm. So it took Wendy Carlos from her like paper yeah. keyboard yeah. to being able to make music with Leonard Bernstein at the Lincoln Centre yeah. rather than needing the money to commission orchestras herself yeah. or, you know, write with a kind of huge performing group in mind, which obviously she would not have had the means to do. So, yeah, massively influential in all kinds of ways. Carlos, she went on to release a number of other studio albums. The soundtrack for A Clockwork Orange. Famously Clockwork <laughs> yeah. Orange, yeah. Also the score to The Shining as well. She composed the score to Disney's 1982 film Tron. Uh, I that, didn't know that. Yeah, that was like a mixture of her synthesizer music and then music from the London Philharmonic as well. Um, and she also released a record, it's very influential, perhaps not as famous, Sonic Seasonings, which was, well, some say it's the first ever ambient album. Okay. It was kind of field recordings which take uh, the listener through all seasons throughout right. the year. But it's kind of exploring those concepts of of space and natural sounds being part of music, interacting with music, yeah. which, you know, are central to the ideas articulated by Brian Eno in his writings on ambient music, but do before they, he wrote that. So. Yeah. Do the the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, does that use some of her switched on Bark, Bark stuff? I think it, it does, does. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. 
So her gender transition was complete by 1972 and then she sort of slips away from the limelight. Mm. Uh, She once said she lost an entire decade. There's even a story that Stevie Wonder, who is famous for using the synth in um, some of his biggest records, um, apparently he came looking for her for some kind of synth inspiration and he was knocking on the door and she hid because she didn't want to kind of, you know, emerge with this new identity and it to be really public. She talks about her her transgender identity with Playboy of all publications in 1979. And she kind of related it to the reaction to Switched on Bach when that was released. She said, those who were comfortable in all forms of music, those who were open to novel variations, loved it. She's talking about Switched on Bach. And she says, transsexuality too is an emotional, action-prone situation in that it tends to polarise people depending on the attitudes one brings to sexuality and human rights. In both cases, there's no middle ground. So, right. Wendy Carlos, Wendy no, Carlos, not a middle ground person by any means. I also think it's fascinating that there is another, because Walter Carlos, as Wendy was then when she mm. had the early hits, there's another interesting uh, story, journey of gender transition with another Walter. There's a guy called Wally Stott, who okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of. No. Wally, Walter Stott. Mm. Brilliant arranger of pop records in the 1960s. Scott Walker's arranger. Okay. We're, we're absolutely genius arranger, who is now Angela Morley. Ah. And I just think that's that's, that's yeah, always, it's yes. just a, just a quirky coincidence. That these two brilliant Walters yeah, both both yeah. transitioned. Yeah, that yeah. that is interesting. And she's eighty one now, still alive. Uh, possibly one of the most important. Well, not possibly, um, definitely one of the oh, most important living absolutely pioneers in I electronic mean, music. Absolutely, it's such an influential record. That yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of leads us into our notable exception. It does. Yeah, we've got one. Jeff. We've actually, Jeff, producer you, Jeff. He won't believe it. You won't believe it. We've actually thought one in advance because it's a sort of notable exception. Um, the first Moogs, Moogs, mm. Moogs bought to Britain were bought by George Harrison of the Beatles, yeah. using it on Abbey Road, mm. and Mick Jagger. Yeah. But what's unusual and notable about Mick Jagger, Elizabeth? <laughs> So he um, bought a hugely expensive modular Moog Moog in uh, 1967 and he used it only once and that was in the film performance. As a prop. Yeah, as a prop. And then he sold it. This is, so it does get this better, is amazing. this story. Sold it to Tangerine Dream. Amazing. That is amazing. So mm. the tan- so I guess if you love like I did those early Tangerine Dream records like yeah. well the middle the Phaedra and Rubicon these are that's the synth they bought from Mick, Mick Jagger, Jagger who lazy old Mick couldn't be yeah. learning how to play it. <laughs> he just, just pretended to around with twiddle it, it in performance, performance and flogged it. One of many things he was oh. twiddling around with wow. in performance. <laughs> well, I have no idea what Elizabeth means, so let's move on. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
<laughs> Let's move on to Norman Clement Pilcher. Ooh. Born 1936, transferred from the Flying Squad to the Drug Squad in 1967 and became, for a while, maybe Britain's most famous policeman because he became the policeman who went after pop stars, didn't he? Yeah. He did, yeah. Now, if I've been listening to a podcast with him on recently. He, he's passed away just recently, but I listened to a podcast on the last things he did. And he sort of tries to say, and indeed he does say it, like... I, Four percent of my work, he says, was going after pop stars, but it's such that he did it so famously. And he says yeah. he went after, he says eight, but then he lists seven people, <laughs> and they are Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops, yeah, Dusty, Dusty Springfield, Springfield yeah. <laughs> Lionel Bart, Tubby Hayes, the jazz saxophonist, of which more in a moment, but most famously, I guess, John Lennon. George Harrison and Brian Jones yeah. of the Rolling Stones. Interesting playlist there of it Noddy is. Pilchers. So, target. Tubby Hayes, let's start with Tubby Hayes because this is an interesting one. Uh, uh, Hayes living in Chelsea, and um, I don't know where it comes from. So, did he have an abnormal interest in musicians, Norman Pilcher? Was it just his job? But in 68, they raid Tubby Hayes' flat and find traces of dimorphine and heroin. And apparently, and Pilcher says this about himself, he says that he helped him. He drove him um, to Charing Cross Hospital to get him some help for his heroin addiction, as well as kind of, you know, charging him with it as well. So then, to be slightly unfair, you might say, well, he gets a taste for it now, Pilcher. Gets a taste (laughs) for the high life. Because he was always pictured, wasn't he? That's the thing. He's always pictured. There's only one bit of actual moving footage, I think, of him when he he arrested Brian Jones and you see him coming out. But, I mean... some people think, oh, he got a taste for it. He just liked becoming the guy who went after pop stars. Um, was so, he really famous at the time? I think he was. We'll come back to how he's fame. We'll come right. back in a moment okay. to exactly how famous he became because he's been immortalised in different things, songs. Yeah. But we'll come back to that. Epstein's been dead a year. The Beatles haven't got that kind of carapace of protection around them. So he decides Lennon and Ono, because Lennon's saying it with Ono, and they're sort of moving around London peripatetically, aren't they? They've not got a proper base. They're living in a succession of flats around London. And they're living in Ringo Starr's Piedator in West London at 34 Montague Square. Starr's gone, but he keeps it on as a kind of pad for his mates. Jimi Hendrix lived there for a while. And there's a great picture, isn't there, of Jimi Hendrix like cooking up some bacon and eggs with Ringo Starr in the background. But Hendrix has got like a frock coat on. And <laughs> yeah, he's purple, like, he's like, velvet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's like dressed to go on stage, but he's making Ringo Starr like bacon and eggs. He was a big fan of Coronation Street as well. Was he? Yeah, Jimi uh, Hendrix. That's another notable. Yeah, it is, yeah. Can you imagine Hendrix had guested in Coronation Street coming oh, to the I'm, cabin I know. for That'd some lighter fuel to set yeah. fire to his guitar? <laughs> Um, so Pilcher and the drug squad here that Lennon and Ono are living in this flat in Montague Square in West London and might be recreationally using some stuff. Lennon's sort of matey with the Daily Mirror uh, reporter called Don Short, who sort of says to him, you want to watch out, you're on Norman Pilcher's radar sort of thing. And what it happens, though, it, Lennon manages it and he says, you know, there's going to be a raid. The first time, knowing that Jimi Hendrix has been there recently, Lennon uh, personally vacuumed the flat to ensure nothing was there. And uh, Pete Shotton, uh, what Beatles entourage, he's there as well, uh, removes the vacuum cleaner bag and disposes of it. But then, 11.55am, just before noon, Friday the 18th of October, Lennon and Nono, still asleep. Mm. Hey, you and I... We're up at half past five at the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. But Rockstar's staying in bed till 12. Yeah, this was the 60s, wasn't it? And they hear a knock on the door, 
And it is, Lennon says, all of a sudden there was a knock on the door and a woman's voice outside. She said, I've got a message for you. We said, who is it? You're not the postman. And she said, no, it's very personal. And this woman starts pushing the door. We had been in bed and our lower regions were uncovered. Yoko ran into the bathroom to get dressed. And I said, ring the lawyer, quick. So, outsider, eight policemen. Lennon, he didn't notice. There's a Daily Express cameraman there as well. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who okay. told the Daily... Norman, how do you tell him? <laughs> so, anyway, Yoko gets in touch with Apple and they bring two sniffer dogs in, Boo Boo and Yogi. And... Um, <laughs> Where are they now? I don't Where are they now? Well, sadly, they'll be dead, won't they? They still do. Yeah. I mean, well, come I on. It's 1969. <laughs> come on. Aww. Unless they're the world's oldest dogs. <laughs> still doing their, like, yeah. comedy but circuit. They, they managed to find, despite Lennon's hoovering up, they managed to find 219 grains of cannabis resin. Now, Mm. These days, in the more, I mean, we're still pretty unrelaxed about drugs, aren't we? But yeah, I think you would be given, I think your PC would give you a clip round here and send you on your way. But they charged him with possession, Paddington Police Station at 1.20pm. Um, and then Pilcher says, oh, while you're here, can you sign a couple of albums for me? <laughs> Suggesting that he was enjoying his newfound role as a celebrity drug buster. Well, didn't they actually write to each other? Uh, they, Lennon well, and they Pilcher, did. They did eventually. hilariously. One of the albums he starts, he gets out, is Two Virgins. I mean, you'd think he would have, like... Yeah, some of the big ones. Revolver yeah. and Sergeant Pepper. But one of the ones he gives me to sign is Two Virgins. That's got to be an awkward moment when Pilcher says, sorry about dragging you here and arresting you. Could you sign these nude pictures of yourself for me? Anyway, he Lennon always insisted he'd been framed. He said he'd hoovered up and it must have been planted. Fined £150, but the... That's not the main problem, really. The trouble is that it, going forward, it caused them all kinds of grief. It was part of his struggles to get American citizenship. He was deported in 71 from America because of it. And Ono said it contributed to her losing custody of her daughter, Kyoko. Oh, really? So, right, OK. So, but he goes on from strength to strength, if you want to put it that way. March 12, 1969, ironically, the night Paul McCartney married Linda Eastman, okay. he busts Harrison... In his, I never know, is it Isha or Esha? I think it's Isha, isn't it? Uh, is it? Isha, yeah. He said, like, this is hilarious. When, when Pilcher opened up an enormous stash of marijuana hidden in a shoe, <laughs> Harrison said, I'm a tidy man. I keep my socks in the sock drawer and my stash in the stash box. That's not mine. <laughs> Was it a policeman's shoe? Well, <laughs> size 10, yeah. yeah. This sort of slightly dubious bust brings an end, really to Pilch's activities on musicians. He does Brian Jones as well, who apparently was terrified. But this sort of brings it off, this sort of brings it to to an end. Weirdly, Pilch gets convicted of perjury himself because of a drug case, which suggests mm, all's not going exactly by the book, and he goes to prison. I know, four years ago, didn't he? Pilch went amazing. to prison himself. Which was, I bet, it, was it like fabricating fabricating entries in the police diary I or think some it might perjury? Have been. But they made an ex- the judge made an example yeah, of him, basically, didn't he? For sure, because this was when they were clamping down on corrupt cops yeah, around yeah. Soho and London, wasn't it? Yeah. Several celebrities said he'd framed them. Or they said that he only did these busts for the tabloids who were, you know, encouraging yeah, yeah. him sort of thing. Why were they? Di- why did he side? I mean, obviously, these are high-profile 
in, you know, they were high profile cases. But why were they targeting pop stars at that time? Was it like a clean up society? Or... I don't know if it was as much that, but maybe just the press had thought, you know what, some of these new. Because remember, we're, we're talking like the early days of what you might call the counterculture. Yeah. So I guess these tabloid papers are going, hey, do you know what? Some of these pop stars. Um, they're getting up to no good, and that would look yeah. That would look that'd make for good copy, I guess. I remember even being a small kid in the eighties, and my grandma and granddad talking about how the Beatles took drugs. Yeah, <laughs> people always talked about that it is, in, at that time. Well, they they, that very, older generation, they, like, they talked about it, didn't they? Openly, they yeah. talked about it. The Beatles, and I think there's also there's definitely class and youth prejudice, yeah, yeah. isn't there? A lot of the establishment, I, I think, hated the fact that people like the Beatles and Mick Jagger are the new aristocrats yeah. because they thought that it should be people like them. So, yeah. you know, so Humphrey Bumpton Tufton. And that <laughs> these working class kids from Liverpool and Kent yeah. are becoming the new aristocrats. And having a lovely time. Having a lovely time as well. They want to drag them down, don't <laughs> yeah, they? I think yeah. there's a lot of that in it. So nothing's ever been proven whether he planted stuff or not, but there's all this kind of stuff. You're right, Lennon and him stayed in touch. They wrote to each other. There are Christmas cards. In I Am The Walrus... He is the Semolina Pilchard, yep. Norman Pilchard. So he actually says in an interview, I am the walrus, but I don't think anyone's ever suggested that he was walrus. actually the walrus. But he definitely <laughs> is the Semolina Pilchard yep. in, uh, in that. Lennon sends him a postcard from Japan saying, you can't catch me now. That's right, which is hilarious, <laughs> isn't it? There's a 2003 Primer song, Pilchard's Squad, which is about him. Um if you've seen the Monty Python sketch in the in the Piranha Brothers sketch, they're terrified of a character called Spiny Norman. That's supposed to be based on okay. Norman Pilcher. In another uh, sketch, Graham Chapman, as a character very like him, says, "I'm charging you with illegal possession of whatever we happen to have down there at the station." And Eric Idle in the Ruttles pastiche of 1978, which is brilliant. There's a policeman in there called Brian Plant who's widely regarded to be based on Norman Pilcher. But, but in, in later years, he became completely, not pro-drugs, I wouldn't go that far, but he said that it was a mistake. Yeah, the war pro-legalisation. On dr- completely said the war yeah. on drugs was a mistake. Yeah. And, he, and, he's, and it's quite he took sweet. took it all underground and led yeah. to kind of gang warfare and all that sort of thing. That's right, yeah. and he also said quite sweetly, all these people wanted to do, I now realise, was have a nice time, but I was only doing my job. Yeah, I think he was enjoying it a bit as well. What's also interesting, he actually had quite, he he sort of I mean I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but he he was okay in prison for that. He played football, didn't he, and cricket well, for the prison team. He did, and then it was only later that he said he'd become angry. I mean, we're talking like forty years later yeah, or something. Yeah, I know, <laughs> it's a really I know. Like delayed anger. Um, those two albums you're talking about, they signed, including Two Virgins, they went for auction in the 1990s, but I'm afraid we don't know exactly how much they went for or who they went to. But in, so if that was you that bought it. If it was you, tell us. In 2020, if you want to know more, he brought an autobiography called Ben Coppers, yeah. which he talks about all his celebrity dealings with drug stars. Drug stars? I think I'll say that again. With <laughs> pop stars, they're very much not drug stars, shall I say. But he passed away on March 14th this year after a long battle oh. with cancer. But, uh, yeah. What an interesting life. And there's one bit of YouTube footage of him taking, uh, not Brian Jones himself, who I think is waiting in the back of the car, frightened, but taking another uh, member of the counterculture to the to the back of the car. But, yeah. So, um, okay. yeah, Wendy Carlos and Norman Pilcher. Norman Pilcher. Never let it be said that we're not eclectic. <laughs> so, yeah, join us next week, if you can. If you can. Um, at Timber Festival, or you can just listen online, as normal. 
if you're down there at Timber Festival, come along. Otherwise, depending which order you're listening to these in, because that's the way of podcasts, isn't it? You could yeah. be listening to this in the year 2044, <laughs> in which case, how are those hover jetpacks and protein pill food going? Um, but we are. we got one more in this season of Notable, um, and we think it might be the history of the music festival and the Voyager Golden Record. Indeed. Join us then. Bye-bye. Bye. Notable, the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.